the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to the Science Inside. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. And this is the one hour of the week where we get a little bit nerdy and look at some science around a news story and just generally in your world. So whether you have your PhD and you love science, you have a t-shirt that says I heart science or whether you think it's something that belongs in a lab and doesn't have too much to do with your life. This is this show is actually for both of you. Let me just say it like that because this is where we take the intricate and beautiful research of scientists and really apply it to our lives and see how it affects our lives. Today on the show, we look at a beetle that is less than a centimeter in size. It's really tiny, but it could bring down an entire forest. In fact, it is threatening Joburg as we speak. If you own or love trees, if you love walking in Emerentia or somewhere, a park near where you live, if you have a tree in your garden, this is something you should know about because the shot hole borer beetle is threatening trees. And we are going to look more at how exactly that is happening and what scientists are doing against that later in the show. But let me say, first and foremost, this is important for all of us because, of course, trees help create the oxygen that we breathe, but also they're just so beautiful and there are so many of them in our city. If you're high up on a hill looking over the city, maybe if you're an aeroplane flying over Joburg, it is so beautiful to see these big green areas, these just canopies of trees, even in places that do have houses underneath them. There are quite a few areas like that and I can understand why so many people have told me Joburg is the largest man-made forest in the world. It's something that Joburgers like to say and they're quite proud of it. But I have some bad news for you because according to a report by Africa Check a few years back, this is not exactly the case. Yes, I know. Very sad. First of all, let's just understand what in this report was understood to be a forest and what makes an area count as a forest. So it's defined as a collection of ecosystems dominated by trees and other woody vegetation, which does sound quite straightforward as an answer, but the answer is a little bit more complicated. Forests are classified by a number of factors, such as the number of trees per square kilometer, the sort of trees in that area, the breadth of the trunk of the trees, and the spacing of the trees. So a lot gets taken into consideration. And if you take all of that together, actually, the province of Mpumalanga would be the place most populated by trees in South Africa. According to the United States National Vegetation Classification System, Forests consist of trees with overlapping crowns of 60 to 100% cover. But apparently South Africa only has a plantation area of more than 1.5 million hectares, representing just over 1% of land area, and that's quite small in comparison to other countries like 30% of the USA or even 67% of Japan. So this claim that Joburg is the, is the largest man-made forest in the world is an urban myth. I'm so sorry, South Africans, I know you love it. And there are a lot of trees here, but that specific thing is 
untrue. However, I do have to say that other researchers have countered that report by saying, mm, you know, we can't really compare a man-made forest within an urban area, within a city, to one that is, say, plantations or um somewhere out you know on on the plots or or out um in a rural area those are not the same because there are of course many houses and um other kinds of buildings so there are people that say while it might not be the biggest man-made forest it is the biggest man-made forest in an urban area so if you want to be that particular about it, I guess you could still call your beloved Josie that. And I do have to say, it has about 10 million trees as a city. So whether we're squabbling about this particular term or not, it definitely has a lot of trees, including, of course, many beautiful indigenous trees like the acacia. And this is beautiful until this little beetle came to eat our trees in a way or rather threaten them and we're going to look a little bit more at the beetle the fungus that it carries and what this means if you live in not only Joburg but other areas in South Africa or are just really interested in this threat to our trees that will be the main story later in the show we talk to the researchers that are trying to stop this or at least curb the spread then it's our feature called Unscience, where we find out how a different kind of bug might be the answer to our plastic problem. And then later in the show, as we always do, we look at the scientists behind the science with Professor Mandeep Kaur about biomarkers for diseases like cancer. A lot of really good stuff on the show today. And you can find us on social media if you want to connect with us. Vow FM is the best place to find us. So Vow FM on Twitter and on Facebook. The WhatsApp line 0840784912. I hope you already have that in your phone so you can just quickly send us this morning a message. And as always, the podcast will be up. Do make sure that you have the new podcast link. It is now vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Speaking of science, let's get into it with our science news. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Before we get into the rest of the show, let us just have a look at what's happening around the world when it comes to science news and research. I'm here with one of our producers, Glory. Hi, Glory. What do you have for us today? Hi, Elna. So my new story comes from the Govan Institute of Medical Research, and it is about DNA. So Australian researchers have recently discovered a new form of DNA living in cells. Sounds interesting. I always kind of just thought there was only the one. So tell us more about this new form. So, these researchers have identified this new DNA structure as the eye motif living inside cells. It is a twisted knot of DNA that has never been seen directly living inside cells. However, it has been seen under artificial laboratory con conditions, but never inside cells. Okay, I think most of us have this iconic picture in our minds when we, when we think of DNA, the double helix structure, so this little thing that looks like a twisted ladder, that's what DNA is in my brain. How is this new DNA structure different? Well, 
According to these researchers, this new DNA structure looks completely different to the double-stranded DNA double helix. Professor Daniel Christ, one of the researchers that led the research, went on to state that when most of us think DNA, we think of the double helix. He stated that this research reminds us of many other DNA structures that exist and therefore could be important for ourselves. It is said that this I-motif is a four-stranded knot of DNA. In this knot structure, the nucleotides called cytosine on the same strand bind to each other, which makes it quite completely different from a double helix, where letters on the opposite s- strands bind to each other. Okay, true. I get what you mean. I think anyone who did biology in high school would remember that golden rule that w- that we were taught. So the opposite nucleotides on the double helix bind to each other. Guanine would bind to cytosine and thymine would bind to adenine. I'm sure I've given quite a few people like a flashback now to high school. So I'm quite interested that this new DNA structure completely defies this rule that we've come to know for quite a long time. So it does beg the question, Glory, why has the structure only been discovered now when it's been around forever? Well, scientists have actually seen the eye motive before, but just not in living human cells. So therefore, this has led them to try and sort of like find ways to see if they can detect the structure in living cells. So this is why they developed a precise new tool using a fragment of the antibody. This antibody could recognize and attach to these eye motives at a high affinity. The reason why it has been very difficult to locate the structure has been due to the fact that there haven't been any specific antibodies that were, that were available to sort of like detect these eye motives. So in order for them to solve this problem, they created their own antibody. That's amazing that they even could do that and create them themselves. Scientists are so clever in finding ways around their problems. Yes, they are very smart. With this new antibody tool, they were able to uncover a range of these eye motifs living in human cell lines. They use a technique called fluorescence, and this is a property that detects light emitted by molecules to pinpoint where these eye motifs were located, and thus they were able to identify numerous spots of green within the nucleus which resembled the eye motif. Another interesting thing was that they could see these tiny motifs appearing and disappearing over time, so they kept forming and dissolving very quickly. So is this the reason that it's been so difficult to find these eye motives? And if they're doing these strange disappearing acts, what is the reason for that behavior? Dr. Zaretti, one of the researchers, says that it could possibly be because they are involved in some control mechanism that switches the genes on and off. This, however, is yet to be investigated. This new structure could possibly answer some questions in human genetics, and I'm pretty excited to hear more about this. I'm sure if we're able to now pin this down, who knows what we'll be able to understand once we, once the researchers look more closely at what this exactly means. We're just getting to know this DNA structure. What are, are all the things that it could tell us? Very interesting. In my story today, um, it does come from Science Daily and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. And this one is for the sports fans, or more particular, any anybody who loves soccer. Glory, are you one of those people? 
Definitely not. Nope. You don't even know which team. No. There's like, a ball no. and a goal. That's all. No. <laughs> My, myself, I am also not the biggest... Um, I don't even want to say that I'm not a fan. It's just that I don't really know anything about soccer. And this story isn't helping, unfortunately. There have been quite a lot of concerted efforts in sports medicine, as you can believe, I'm sure, to help prevent or at least reduce long-term brain injuries. But it turns out that all of this work may have been focused on the wrong thing. Oh, no. I'm assuming they've been looking at when a player gets hit in the head. Yes. So the work has mostly been around accidental head collisions, which is when uh, you hit your head maybe on the ground or a goalpost or even two players' heads get knocked against each other. And um, as you can imagine, that can be painful. But it's been found that something else is causing worse cognitive function than that, and it's heading. So I'm sure you've seen that picture of a guy sort of bouncing the ball on his or her head um, or headbutting it in a specific direction. It is part of normal play. But this research is showing that that could be a problem. And it was recently published in the journal Frontiers in Neurology. And it's saying that up till now, the efforts to reduce long-term brain injuries have been focusing too narrowly on these accidental collisions whereas heading could be a big problem. But surely those accidents are the cause of the damage. Yes, because you are hitting your head against the ground, so it's not going to do nothing. That is very true. They are generally considered the most common cause of diagnosed concussions in soccer. So it's understandable that there's been so much focus on this. A previous study, however, showed that frequent heading can cause concussions also. And this new piece of research on top of that shows that not only concussions, but it can change your cognitive function. So the way your brain works and makes decisions, at least temporarily. That sounds really scary. So how was this study done? They looked at over just over 300 amateur soccer players in the New York City region and asked them about their recent soccer activity and tested various neurophysical things like verbal learning, verbal memory, psychomotor speed, attention and working memory, which are, of course, um, all of those are cognitive functions. And the majority of these players were male. So while only one in about three players had an accidental head impact in the two weeks that they were looking at, the players averaged on 45 headings. So that's a lot of ball, like ball headbutts. And the results showed that there was a correlation between doing that and having lower scores on some of these tests. The unintentional head impacts, however, were not related to any aspect of cognitive performance. Wow. So do soccer players need to stop doing this now? Yes. If soccer players are listening, don't get too scared yet because there is a research process that will hopefully still help before this just gets outlawed in soccer. And it is important to say that... There were changes in cognitive function, as I said, but it wasn't the kind of change that was a lasting drastic impairment. But of course, the researchers are worried that these subtle changes that happen every time you do a heading will have negative effects over a longer period of time. And 
since most soccer players do this for a number of years, if not large amounts of their life, they might be a soccer player. That is something to think about if you are the kind of guy or girl who loves to hit butt balls. They are calling, as I said, for more research into this, and only then can we know for sure and it can have perhaps some impact on on regulations around soccer and the soccer rules. But the scientists are warning regular players of the game, if you can reduce headings, you should. So basically, use your foot for football. (laughs) That's the short version. (laughs) That was our Science Inside News. Thank you so much, Glory, for joining us. Thank you so much, Elna, for having me. Next up, how is it possible that a tiny beetle is threatening thousands of trees in Johannesburg. We find out. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to the Science Inside. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and I love telling you about amazing things in science that aren't just interesting from a research perspective or from an academic perspective, but really have something to do with our life and our lives. And in this case, our gardens and our streets, particularly the trees in and on them. Johannesburg and other parts of the country, as you may know, are being threatened by a pest that is tiny but very dangerous and even deadly for the trees. It's only two millimeters big, but the polyphagus shuttlebora beetle is said to have infected and killed between 100,000 and 500,000 trees in the next five years. And that's all not because it is eating the trees, but because it carries quite a deadly fungus. We wanted to find out, especially if you own trees or you really care about the trees and the parks and the gardens in our city, we wanted to find out what exactly this means. So I went onto the quiet, pretty streets of Hurlingham that have these beautiful lines of trees on every side. But that day we were coming to cut down not a whole tree, just some samples for research. And the two men I was with were Mr. Neil Hill, who is from Urban Forest Tree Care Surgeons, and Professor Willem de Beer from the University of Pretoria. He works at the Forestry and Agricultural Biotechnology Institute. They are doing quite a lot of research into this little beetle. And so I went to find out a little bit more and get everything you need to know. My name is Neil. I'm working for a company called Urban Forest. Yeah, so basically our uh, job is to look after and maintain uh, trees uh, as arborists or, or sometimes uh, called tree surgeons in, in other parts of the world. We're in a suburb called Hurlingham um, in northern uh, suburbs of Joburg where we seem to think the pest is sort of most rampant uh, compared to all the other suburbs that we've been called out to. The surrounding suburbs are also quite badly affected, like Craigle and Craigle Park. But Hurlingham seems to be um, the sort of the hub of, of where the, uh, the borer has settled and is spreading uh, from. We, we're using Hurlingham as a sort of a, a, a pilot or test sort of suburb, you know, for things like what we're doing today, identifying host plants, um, possibly 
coming up with treatments and doing experiments on trees with various types of treatments and then working with the community you know to try and explain to them what the problems are and how they can as a community try and deal with um, the infestation a lot of their trees the bigger older more established trees um, like the plains that we're looking at today are quite badly infested and we're just trying to determine whether or not they are a host plant um, and and what the sort of the, the outlook for these trees would be in the next few years. Are you cutting down a tree that you are pretty sure the borer is in to do some research? Yeah. So we've just removed a large limb from a tree here on the pavement. Um, we've spoken with City Parks and they, they're also helping um, you know, try and come up with solutions to control this problem. So today all we've done is we remove one or two bigger limbs uh, from a tree that's infected and then cross-cut you know, uh, through the branches to try and expose the galleries that the, the, the beetle makes as it's moving in to the stem or the branch of the plant to determine whether or not uh, it's, it's a host plant or whether it's you know, just moving in and out without reproducing. Tell me a little bit more about what um, the process has been these last few months. How many trees have you had to cut down because of this and what is the probable spread from here? So yeah, again, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, but definitely there's been a noticeable increase in tree mortality. So uh, there's uh, a host um, plant, the Acenogundo, the box elder maple, which is seemingly the most um, problematic um, because that tree, I think, has been affected for the longest. And, and if that was two years ago, um, we're starting to see severe signs of decline and dieback in those trees now. So it can take up to you know, two years, uh, in some cases, for trees to uh, start to decline and die. Some trees will take longer than that. You know, it might take five years, it might take eight years. And some trees will, will probably cope with the problem. Certainly in the last summer, in this, in this last summer, in the last six months, um, we've seen a noticeable increase in tree death and mortality, especially in that variety of tree. And we're starting to see many, many more infestations on in many different types of trees. So it started off with one or two, and now the list is up to about 35. So we don't know how far it will extend um, uh, you know, into our trees. But I think the long-term effects of this will be felt um, within a few years time and I think there will be a um, you know thinning out of the forest uh, canopy in Johannesburg and then it'll have to be replaced with more suitable trees um, that are possibly not uh, um, vulnerable to the infestation and, and those trees will obviously take time to grow to catch up to to the sizes of the trees that are being felled you know so that there, there may be a gap of about 15 or 20 years so if I'm listening to this, I live in Johannesburg or in South Africa somewhere, I'm getting very worried by what you're saying. What do I do this afternoon when I get home and look at my garden? Okay, so I think one of the things to do is not to panic you know, too much about what, what, what may or may not happen. We don't know, you know, so um, I, there is a lot of concern, obviously, and uh, there are people that are very worried about this and there is some panic about what may happen to our trees but I don't know that it's going to be as bad as all that. I think there will be some um, genus of trees that will be affected and, and may die out um, but I think there will be many other trees that do uh, have the, in, you know, the infection but will survive. 
So we'll only really know, I think, in about two to three years' time um, which of those trees are vulnerable um, and if they are attacked, whether they can or cannot be treated. If they cannot be treated and then they need to be felled, then you know we can recommend replacement trees. So I think for anybody listening, they can go into their gardens and then if you identify any of these trees in your garden, you can, you know, you can call uh, one of your local arborists uh, in the area to come out and inspect the garden to make sure and then you know, uh, to give you advice as to what you can uh, or cannot do. Vaham, you're looking very intently with your pocket knife at these crosscuts of the branch that's already been removed. What are you looking for? Okay, so what we're trying to, to do is the, there's basically two different types of infections in, in trees. The beetle infects a lot of different tree species but only in a few of these species, the beetle um, penetrate deep, establishes what we call a gallery system. So these are little tunnels in which it then cultivates this specific fungus for food. So, so the beetle carries this fungus along with it to cultivate it as food. So, and the fungus then eventually kills the tree. So the beetle doesn't really eat the tree, it, it's eating the fungus. But in some trees, the beetle only gets through the bark. Um, it can put the fungus in, but then it doesn't like the surrounding area or there's resin or something off the tree that it doesn't like. So either the beetle leaves again or it gets trapped and killed by the resin in the tree. So we, we distinguish between these two types. So the first one where the beetle reproduces and makes babies um, and breeds we refer to those as reproductive hosts. And then the second type is a host tree where the fungus can eventually kill the tree, but where the beetle doesn't reproduce. And why it's important for us to, to make this distinction is the reproductive host trees need to be removed from an environment because there the beetles multiply and become a, that tree then becomes a source of infection also to other trees in the area. And if that tree wasn't there, then most probably the beetle wouldn't have gone for the other types of trees, which it's not, it, it's really its preferred host. Can you tell me a little bit more just about the, the basics of the beetle? How big is it? What does it look like? Okay, so the beetle is really tiny. It's like two millimeters in size, so slightly bigger than, uh, than just these little black Argentinian ants that we have. Um, very difficult to identify if you're not an expert. So what we also do, because there's four uh, sister species of the beetle, so for confirmation we have to do DNA sequencing for the beetles to really confirm the identity. Under the microscope we can identify them more or less, um, but we need to be, be able to, to confirm 100% based on DNA sequences. And the same thing is true for the fungus. And what's the way forward? I, I understand you're doing a lot of research on this, but how do we deal with with a crisis like this or such a large-scale problem? Yes. So the first strategy that, that we need to employ is to really try and control um, the, uh, the dumping of, of infested wood in the cities. Um, then the second option is chemical control, but that's an expensive option. And we're still experimenting with that um, together with several companies. Some work has been done on this in the United States, 
But that is only feasible where you really are prepared to spend a lot of money on a single tree in your garden that you really, if you have a big plant tree, if you look around in this garden and sand and there's huge, huge plant trees, oak trees and other trees. So if, if you've got a tree that is really of, of big value to you, then um, and you're prepared to spend a couple of thousand rand a year because these treatments, these are stem injections with chemicals, but they will have to be repeated because the chemicals doesn't stay in the stem. And if your tree is susceptible, you will have to uh, uh, repeat the treatment two or three times maybe a year, which is going to cost over a number of years a lot of money because the beetle is not going to disappear. So once we've removed the reproductive host, the, the numbers of beetles in the environment might go down but the beetle is, is here to stay in South Africa and it's it's moving towards other places as well so okay so it is it is going to stay here yeah. and finding a way to rather as I understand it rather cut down a few reproductive hosts as opposed to many beetles spreading and involuntarily killing yes many many trees yes so what we're seeing is if in gardens where there's a reproductive host, um, other trees that are not necessarily preferred hosts um, are also being attacked. Whereas in, in maybe two or three kilometers from there, if you go into a garden where there's not a reproductive host tree, you will not really find any infestations or the numbers of infestations will be much less. That should give you a little bit of an insight into what the shot hole borer is doing to Johannesburg's trees and a little bit of what you should be aware of if you do have trees in your yard to to just make sure that either you are taking care of them if the beetle has already been there or perhaps just to keep an eye out in case something does happen because of course we do want to protect our trees in Johannesburg. A big thank you to the scientists that we spoke to, Willem de Beer and Neil Hill, on this one. After the break, it is unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Welcome back. My name is Elna Schutz. And now we go to unscience. Just a few minutes in the middle of the show, we get away from the serious stuff, but we still stick with science. This is where it gets a little bit weird and wonderful. Uh, our story today comes from The Guardian Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag? Like a plastic bag? Like a plastic bag? And once again, I have one of our producers, Glory, with us. Hi, Glory. Give us our unscience for the week. I'm pretty sure all of us at home have a plastic bag full of plastics, or is it just me? No, I think many, many households have that plastic bag full of plastics. I definitely have a big stash somewhere. And it's so crazy how easily accessible plastic has become. It's everywhere. It's all over my house. And yet it takes decades to... Uh, you know, degrade and fall apart properly. And it's quite funny if you think about it because most products that are plastic that we 
use and get in our lives like plastic straws and plastic containers they are made as single-use products but then how ironic is it that that thing is the thing that practically lasts forever that is very true Alna it actually makes me wonder why we actually even call fake things plastic when clearly plastic is a very strong material but also it's pretty sad that humans keep manufacturing these products that are that nature can't even digest. We've become so advanced in destroying the planet, almost as if we sort of like went to school for it. Yes, and there's so many layers to this plastic story. It's not just about straws. It's not just about plastic bags. It reminds me of that story we did a few weeks ago on microplastics and plastic water bottles. We're even now starting to consume bits of plastic. How scary is that? And plastic is just becoming a bigger problem not just to ourselves but to the environment yes alna today's in science is going to serve as that ray of hope that we've been waiting for yes please scientists have accidentally created the most unconventional way of dealing with this plastic problem it sounds crazy but can you take a guess how um okay i would say they have thought of a chemical that is just going to come and destroy the plastic and we never have to worry about it again. We can start clean. Close, Alna, but not quite. What if I told you that it's actually a bug? A bug? What bug, Glory, is big enough to eat all of the plastic? (laughs) Is it like a giant dinosaur bug? No, not really. Let me tell you how. So a group of scientists from the University of Portsmouth in the UK have created a mutant enzyme that breaks down plastic bottles, but by accident. This breakthrough came as a result of bugs that were discovered to have evolved to break down plastic at a waste dump in Japan. They discovered that the structure of the crucial enzyme that these bugs produced, and from that, they reproduced it again. That's incredible. Wow, okay, so this sounds very helpful. I know, right? Who knew a bug would come to our rescue? We've known bugs to be those tiny little disgusting things that are only good for showing up in untidy spaces as a sign that you should probably start cleaning up. What's even more wicked is that these scientists have not only discovered and reproduced this enzyme, they have made it even 20% better than the original enzyme. So now, it has the ability to decompose this plastic at a faster rate. They've also found ways to use this enzyme to turn plastic into its original components so that it's easily recycled back to plastic. That makes a lot of sense to me. Break it down. If, you know, plastic is going to be continued to be used, at least do that and see from there. And that should fundamentally reduce the amount of plastic in the environment. Yep. Yay! I can hear all the sea turtles, like, clapping. Yeah. So next time you come across a bug and you feel like crushing the life out of it, think about the problems it might solve for this planet while day. All lives matter, even a bug's life. Was a bug, little bug, hardly there. Well done, bug. That's unusual, unlikely, unscience. <laughs> Next up, keep listening because we are speaking to a scientist behind the science.
Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This is The Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to our last interview of the show for today. We like to call it the scientist behind the science because we love seeing the people and the passion and the heart behind research and especially research that's going to affect our lives in the future. One very big thing that a lot of us do care about in an incredibly personal way is diseases like cancer. So I'm so glad that we got a chance to speak to this particular scientist. Her name is Professor Mandeep Kaur, and she is an associate professor right here at the University of Witwatersand under the School of Molecular and Cell Biology. Her research field is in cancer biomarkers, also the link between cholesterol and cancer, as well as some other developments in that sphere. She focuses mainly on understanding the molecular bias of diseases, specifically autism and cancer, and does very great work around that. We had the opportunity to speak to her a little bit earlier today and record it for you. Have a listen. Let's start with biomarkers. And in simple terms, what are they for a person who doesn't really know? And what role do they play in the process of making a medicine or a drug? So biomarkers, if we look at in general terms, they are like a marker we we use. Um, in clinical terminology, that would be a natural biomolecule in the body that can help us understand a particular disease. For example, I would just give you a very basic example of blood pressure. Blood pressure is a biomarker. So when we give a drug to a patient, we can monitor blood pressure and see if the drug is working or not. Similarly, we are trying to develop biomarkers for cancer treatment and see how the treatment is working in the patients. And another utility of biomarkers is that um, we can detect the disease in very, very early stages so that the patients don't have to go through extensive therapeutics in the clinics. So if I can use an analogy, for instance, of a car, where if I'm driving my car, I have several things on my dashboard, like a speedometer, like uh, my revs, like an engine light if something's wrong. And those instruments show me where am I in a certain process. Yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. Understanding them, these biomarkers, how does it help us actually fight a disease? Biomarkers, as I mentioned, these are the indicators. So uh, in general terms, if we look at um, like human body has certain genes that the expression of those genes goes up and down as the disease progresses. So we can look at the expression that how particular genes or proteins are behaving in the cell and that can help us to track the progression of the disease in patients. And they are also very, very useful in terms of monitoring the drug response in clinical settings as well. Tell us a little bit more about the particular work you've done. What biomarkers and what diseases have you um, been looking at? So I'm basically working in the field of cancer. So one of the work that I have done is in ovarian cancer. So ovarian cancer is a very difficult disease to diagnose in the very early stages. Mostly the disease is diagnosed in the latest stages and with, when there is no 
uh, treatment available and most of the patients they succumb to the disease. So in that case, one of my work, which has been patented now, we identified a set of biomarkers, a set of genes, basically the proteins, and whose expression we can uh, link to the development of the disease. So we are still working on developing a kit that we can bring to the market in clinical settings. Suppose patients go to a doctor and in the clinic they can just take a blood sample, uh, look at the expression of those proteins and the doctor would be able to identify disease at a very early stage. Apart from the complexity of the disease, what are some of the big challenges you face in your work? Um, there are many challenges, particularly like if I talk about from the lab point of view. Um, we work with cancer cells, and it is the one of the most laborious type of work that we do in science. We grow cancer cells in the laboratory. We deal with contaminations every day. Sometimes they refuse to grow. Just to give you an example, I bought a new cell line last year and it's been eight months cells are refusing to grow. And we spend like 15,000 rands on that cell line. Um, and, and this is just one example. Uh, so this is a very challenging type of work. We need a lot of skill to do this work, but on top of that, we need to have a lot of patience every day. Um, to to keep this work going. Just to clarify, you are buying cancer cells that you then grow to um, use new treatments on. I am quite surprised by that because I would think that many hospitals and cancer patients would happily donate their cancer cells um, for the sake of research, and, but you're buying them. Yes. Um, now... Here we have technical you know, issues that we have to deal with. We can get patient samples and then we can derive cell lines from them, but they are called as primary cells. They don't survive for more than 40 cycles in the laboratory. And every time then we have to find a new patient to get a new cell line. While the cell lines that we buy, there are certain repositories in the world, like in, in Europe, in US, and their job is to like create cell lines and keep them, um, and they sell it to people or, or to the researchers all over the world. So they are authenticated cell lines, and, but they do certain changes in their in their genetic makeup that we can grow them like basically um, infinitely. They don't die, so that is why for us they are the best model at the, at this point in time. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. A very interesting fact there around the, the research that goes into it. Let's move a little bit closer to your personal journey. What led you into this research field? Okay, um, I have always been doing disease biology. I did my PhD in Alzheimer's disease. But uh, during the process, you know, I got quite interested in how cells die because that is a fundamental process of life. Um, every day, thousands of cells in our body, they just die, but new are produced. 
but the property of cancer is that the cells they keep on dividing and they and they don't die so because i was intrigued by the process so i started my training into the field to see that what are the biological fundamentals and if we can get a better understanding of these biological pro- processes then possibly we can find treatments for not only for cancer but several neurodegenerative disorders as well because everything is linked so so then i started working in cancer and cancer cell lines as i mentioned they provide one of they are one of the best models that we can manipulate in the laboratory so they are easy to study as compared to brain cells and other cells um so that is where my journey started and then i just went on and on into different areas of cancer research and what do you hope your career as a whole is there something that you're really hoping you achieve yes i would consider myself very fortunate if i could find um a drug that can actually heal people um that would be my ultimate goal it's very far fetching because bringing a drug to market takes more than 15 years even if it is a headache pill so it's not an easy process um the facilities we don't have that kind of facilities in the universities and at later stages of the process we need to depend on the pharmaceutical companies um so but we are trying very very hard to get something onto the market currently i'm working on a drug molecule that we have recently developed um again like we are trying to develop a new treatment for breast cancer and we have done laboratory studies we have found that it only kills the cancer cells it doesn't kill the normal cells in the in the body uh, in the culture and what does that mean is it means that that can come as a drug and it won't have lots of negative effects in the patients so we recently got some funding from technology innovation agency of south africa to do this project and i'm taking this molecule for testing in mice now we are starting this study in a month's time um and if we are successful with the project then in 2 years time i'm hoping to take this molecule to clinical trials it's a long journey but but i'm hoping for the best and i'm hoping with you because that sounds like a very worthwhile goal for one's career most definitely just looking at the amount of people that that would affect just to end off um we love asking all our scientists this what is the one thing you would like laymen listening ordinary people listening to know about your field of research only thing is that we as a scientist i would and and i think on behalf of scientific community i would like to ensure and tell people that we are working very very hard um to to make everyone's life worthwhile when it comes to cancer and because it's a it's a disease i've seen patients i've seen families who are affected by that and and hope that you know at social level and even at government level we'll get that kind of support to progress our work so that we can do something for society and especially people who are you know affected by this disease thank you so much for talking to us thank you very much
That was Professor Mandeep Kaur telling us her views as the scientist behind the science working on cancer biomarkers. What an amazing interview. It makes me so happy and proud that there are researchers working on this, really giving their time and their effort. Do keep listening to The Science Inside. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to the last little bit of The Science Inside. Unfortunately, you have just missed quite a great show. We have spoken about uh, the trees that are dying in Johannesburg of the shot hole borer beetle. Then we had some interesting Things about another kind of bug that might help with the plastic problem. Also, we spoke to a professor that was able to tell us more about cancer research in terms of biomarkers. Such interesting and just applicable research today on the show. If you missed it, you don't have to cry. Calm down. The podcast will be up on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science very soon you can find it there also on facebook and twitter as vow fm you can find us also the vitz radio academy is on facebook so you should be able to find us and get all the information you do need thank you to all of our just all of the guests featured on the show including willem de beer neil hill and professor mandeep kwar I am so sorry that we did not actually catch the beetle, so we can't say thank you to him. Who we can say thank you to is our team behind the scenes. Bridget Lepere, Harmony Molefi, Lebohang Madisha and Gloria Mabuza do our production and tech by the wonderful Kotlano Sahame. As I said, you can find us on social media. My name is Alna Schutz and the Science Insider is produced by the Wits Radio Academy in partnership with the South African Department of Science and Technology. Join me again next week. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.